In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Sometimes you wake up and things have gone to hell. Again. People running for their lives, hiding in groves of trees, dying in the road, shot by rampaging Palestinian militants. Some concert goers dragged into Gaza, hostages mutilated and paraded. 260 bodies found at this music festival site in Israel. Airstrikes have continued today in Gaza. Casualties are over 750 Palestinians there. We've learned today that over 900 Israelis were killed in that attack. We are in the town of Zderot, and there has been a lot of incoming fire here. Israel's retaliation by air is, by its own estimates, already among the largest ever against Gaza, adding agony to the existing misery of life inside. Palestinians in Gaza have nowhere to go. It has been four days since Hamas launched a terror attack that brutally murdered hundreds of Israelis. Not long after that, Israel responded with airstrikes in Gaza that threatened the lives and safety of the millions of Palestinian civilians who live there. On both sides, dead children, civilians, innocents. On both sides, ordinary people who want peace. They don't seem likely to get it. The current war is one of the bloodiest in a bloody history. Decades of attacks, incursions, terror, occupation, and death. Right now, the conflict is between Hamas and Israel. We don't know if it will stay that way. Experts who study the region are asking if it's really possible that nobody knew this was coming. Not even the nation that actively funds Hamas. And when eyes look to Iran, there are always other powers with potential to be drawn into that conflict. Already there has been a suggestion of artillery fire on Israel's northern border. Will a shadow war soon emerge into the daylight? It doesn't have to happen this way. Yet it might. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Arash Azizi is a senior lecturer in history and political science at Clemson University. He is a Canadian who focuses on the Middle East. His new book, What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom, will be published next January. Hello, Arash. Hi, Jordan. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you as well. I wish uh, we weren't talking under these circumstances, but here we are. That's right. I wanted to just start... Because by now, uh, people have seen and heard some truly horrific details about the violence taking place over the weekend. 
all those details have been quite jumbled. I understand we're we're getting a bit of a clearer picture of what's actually happened here. I know you're not on the ground, but could you maybe lay out for those who haven't followed it closely just, you know, the timeline of, of what happened from the attack to the retaliation and, and where we are now? Of course, it's the latest round of a conflict that has, has gone on for decades. But the most recent event was that on Saturday, to everyone's surprise, and I don't think there is any analyst of the Middle East uh, who is honest who would say they weren't surprised by the particularities of this attack, what happened on Saturday was that hundreds of fighters from the Palestinian group Hamas. This is a recognized uh, terrorist group in many countries in the world, um, including obviously by Israel itself, that runs the Gaza Strip. That's one of the two sections of the Palestinian uh, territories that is that is run by uh, Hamas, although it's under effective siege by Israel uh, since it, uh, you know, since it evacuated it in 2005. And so Hamas fighters, hundreds of them, um, by now we know that probably 1,500 at least, uh, stormed out of Gaza Strip, attacked uh, Israeli military bases nearby first, and then went on a rampage, attacking a dozen of Israeli towns, small towns, mostly near the Gaza Strip, and killed a lot of civilians, including uh, children. They attacked a rave party, sort of a desert dance party that was going on, and killed a couple of hundred people there. And the number of Israeli civilians now uh, is more than 900. This is the uh, is being billed by many, including President of Israel, as the biggest single-day loss of Jewish life uh, since the Holocaust and is certainly on, on any scale is one of the most significant days uh, in the conflict and one of the worst days in, in history of Israel and for the Israeli people. What has followed is that the Israeli government has gone on attacking Gaza as it has done previously, as it has done repeatedly in the last uh, few years, leading to hundreds of Palestinian casualties. This is usual, but this time it, it's, it looks like that it's even more ferocious and to hundreds of Palestinians, including many children. Palestinian civilians is what we're talking about, to be clear. Hundreds of them have been killed in these Israeli attacks. They include once more uh, many children, mm-hmm. at least four or five journalists. And that's where we stand now. Of course, the question on everyone's mind and the fear on everyone's mind is if if it's a possib- possibility for a broader um, conflagration. I should also add that there has been some exchange of fire in northern border of Israel with Lebanon. That's primarily with the Palestinian groups who are operating out of southern Lebanese border. There was also a smaller exchange of fire with Hezbollah, the uh, Shia uh, group there, but that hasn't escalated beyond a basic exchange of fire yet. So that's where we stand now with hundreds of civilians died on on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians, and much worry about the possibility of a broader conflagration. Well, that's why we wanted to talk to you after uh, you wrote your piece in The Atlantic. And I know this is kind of what you're focusing on. Before we get to those possibilities, you know, you mentioned that nobody saw this coming. How could that happen? And second, and there's no better way to phrase this, but like, how bad is this compared to previous rounds of terror and then retaliation, which again, as you point out, you know, is is sadly nothing new for the region? Uh, That's a very good question. From an intelligence perspective, it baffles me. It baffles most intelligence experts as far as I know. How was it that Israeli army was not able to detect such a multi-pronged attack? Hamas attacked from the sea, from the air, 
Um, how was it able to, you know, how 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 were Israeli soldiers ready to stop this from happening and from from letting the the Hamas militants enter their territory? Um, some have pointed out that a lot of units of the army were in the West Bank where they are protecting the settlers there. You know, that has been something that has been pointed out. But I think intelligence experts and historians will talk about this for a long time. You know, on another level, a lot of us want to point out that, of course, while the particulars were were unpredictable, frankly, it does prove or underlie what many of us have said for a very long time, that the prolonged occupation of the Palestinian territory and the Palestinian territories and the indignity that is really imposing them will will only lead to to terrible things. You know, they asked Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel many years ago, that what he would do if he was a young Palestinian. And he famously said that he'd join one of the terror groups, mm-hmm. understanding that that's, that was the only option open to him. So by, by which I mean, in this sense, it wasn't it wasn't predictable. But in terms of but but let me also answer this. The attack was done on a Jewish holiday. Many compared it to Israeli war of the Israel-Egyptian-Syrian war of 1973, known as Yom Kippur War, which also happened on a Jewish holiday and most importantly also found the Israeli military surprised. But I think this was much worse in many ways. It was much more reminiscent of 1948 because you had these Palestinian militants enter homes of Israeli civilians, killing them. Initial images that um, that have been published speak of possibility of sexual violence, although I think we should be really careful about the details and, you know, let proper investigations show exactly what happened. But it's in its gruesome nature and in its direct nature, in its uh, the fact that, you know, many people that many of us know now have, uh, you know, Israel is a relatively a small country of 9 million. Now there are 1,000 people who were killed, more than 150 who were taken hostage, hundreds more who were besieged for some hours or taken in hostage by some hours before they were released or, or rescued by many of their bri- brave compatriots who came to their help. So the scar that it has left and the gruesome nature and how personal it feels makes it, frankly, unprecedented um, in the history of this conflict as far as um, Israelis are concerned. When you talk about, you know, how these attacks and the response uh, are perceived by either side and also how predictable they are in the broader scheme of things, how fraught is the climate as far as, you know, institutions or people declaring support for the plight of the Palestinian people while also condemning, you know, the brutal terror by Hamas and on the other side, you know, sympathy for the Israeli victims while also perhaps disagreeing uh, with the government's approach to Gaza? In a Better world opposing the murder of civilians, you know, should have been more common. Unfortunately, it isn't. Mm. And, you know, on both sides, I would say there are many who cheer on Israeli attacks on Gaza for knowing full well that hundreds of civilians are paying the price. There are those who have cheered on many, you know, prominent academics, political personalities who some didn't quite cheer on Hamas, but certainly didn't condemn it. And some are, are clearly cheering it on despite the gruesome nature of these attacks. And I want to make it clear, you know, this isn't just about violence because some people, unfortunately, some people are many dishonest discussing this conflict. For example, they say, oh, well, you say violence is not the answer, but, you know, Israeli government is also committing violence. It's not that violence isn't the answer. Every conflict has violence. There is no doubt that there would be violence. It would be, for me, it would be nonsensical to be a pacifist in a, in a conflict, frankly. But what Hamas is doing, the problem with it is not just that it's violent is that A, it's terroristic, i.e. since, you know, laws of war, 
that were passed in uh, late 19th century. We have believed that there is a distinction between civilians and and militants and 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 combatants uh, rather. So you know that distinction is important, and when it's not held, and when it's not even pretend to be held, that matters. And also the political goals of this organization. Ultimately, Jordan, this conflict is about a rather simple thing. There are two national communities, Israelis and Palestinians, living between the river and the sea. And any outlook that doesn't want to give them um, basics that you and I have, that most people in the world have, i.e. statehood and independence, sovereignty, and a life free from and conflict, any outlook that doesn't have that is not something that, that one can support. And Hamas's outlook clearly is not that. It doesn't recognize any rights for Jewish people who live there, Jewish Israelis. And frankly, many of the Israeli parties that are now in the government, these are openly fascist parties that would have been considered far out of the pale until not that long ago and now controlled ministers. They also don't recognize any rights for the Palestinians who've, who've suffered from the longest occupation in modern times. So that's really the issue. And it's very unfortunate, very sad to see many people who claim they are committed to justice fail to stand for this basic principle. And, and let me also add, those who didn't condemn Hamas and those who cheered on, or those who don't condemn targeting of civilians by the Israeli military and cheered on, they're not opposed to these atrocities per se. They're just opposed to it when it happens to a certain side. And I think one has to be clear. And, and let me just finish by saying that Many Israelis and Palestinians, especially those who have a skin in this game, have made us proud by refusing to fall to this dichotomy, despite it being very hard in a ferocious national conflict, and indeed a standing for peace and coexistence, recognition of both sides and condemnation of atrocities on, on both sides. And I think that's also very important. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You know, I guess it's one thing to say that no pundits or no analysts or whatever uh, saw this coming. As you explain in your piece, it, it's unlikely, I guess, uh, is a good way to say it, that nobody else in the region knew this was going to happen. Can you kind of explain w where you see these uh, links to Iran? Of course, the Islamic Republic of Iran, led by Khamenei, the supreme leader there, it's the only state in the world that wants to fight Israel to its destruction. It has an openly anti-Semitic agenda, of course, and it's very open about it wanting to destroy Israel. And when I say it's very open, it's because several leaders of it repeatedly over the years have said that they dedicate millions of dollars to propaganda in that in that purpose. And, and, and it's not just propaganda, of course. I want to clarify again, the Iranian regime is the only state in the world that actually fights Israel and fights Israel with a declared goal of its destruction. No other state, no other Arab, no Arab state, no state in the region does anything like that. And the Iranian state is the only state in the world that arms Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the two groups that committed the atrocities on Saturday, arms them now. They have, you know, Hamas on occasion has gotten help, uh, political and financial help from others, but the only state that really arms it is the Iranian regime. 
Now, the question of how directly Iranian regime was responsible for this is up to debate. Ayatollah Khamenei, in his recent speech, tried very hard to uh, deny um, any direct role uh, that Iran had. But what I tried to say in the piece, you know, I'm not an intelligence officer, obviously. I have no way of knowing the, the intelligence details, but what I, what I am is an expert on, on the relationship Iran has with Hamas. And there is no doubt that Iran would not be entirely, the Iranian regime would not be entirely caught surprised and that there must have been at least some level of coordination, as many analysts have also said, between the Iranian regime, Hamas, and other groups in what the Iranian regime calls axis of resistance, a coalition of political groups, most of them terroristic groups in, in region, in countries such as Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, who all work around the murderous agenda driven uh, by the Iranian regime. As this conflict continues and, you know, you would say hopefully doesn't escalate, it seems like there might be no other way. You mentioned already Hezbollah has exchanged some fire with Israel. What are the chances that access of resistance uh, that you called it becomes more involved as Israel's retaliation continues? Jordan, that is the million dollar question. If a serious Northern Front opens, as we speak today, midday Toronto time uh, on, on Tuesday, and there has been some exchange of fire, but it appears that there were Palestinian groups uh, firing from Israel and they'll get some response. This matters because it means that they're relatively limited. Hezbollah, however, is a massive force. It has a massive missile capabilities. There are also, we have to remember, Syria. You know, Syria is largely, you know, there are parts of Syria in which Iranian, the axis really comes to be, as in the IRGC, the militia that undergirds the Islamic Republic in Iran, organizes there with Hezbollah fighters, with Syrian fighters, with Iraqi fighters, right? So they gather near Israel's borders. If they want to start attacking Israel from the north and Israel responds, that would add to the calamity uh, of this conflict. But of course, the most dangerous one is if the United States or Israel start attacking Iran directly inside the territory of Iran, as some in the United States are already calling for, a broader conflagration, of course, can bring Iraq in, can bring Yemen in. We have to remember Yemen is already in a civil war. Iraq is not quite in a civil war, but it's uh, you know hasn't been far from it in in recent years. The groups there who now actually control the government of Iraq are Shia groups that are committed to axis of resistance and and are pro Iran. Syria, of course, the government there is committed to Iran, although it's a bit more complicated because it also has relations with Russia, which itself has relations with Israel, and Russia becomes an important factor here as well. And Russia is, of course, also gets military help from Iran in terms of drones, and that has complicated its relationship with Israel. So as you see, there are many factors here to play. But I think, you know, what no one can doubt is that a broader conflagration can only mean, uh, can only mean terrible things, frankly. And if the opposite of that, if you will, is possibilities of finding peaceful paths, which do exist. We have to remember most states in the region are not committed to conflagration. Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, you know, now these states are not democratic, you know, they're not liberal, um, but they're also not, they don't benefit from fighting. It's only the Iranian regime who really seems to revel in this kind of uh, fighting. The other, you know, the other uh, states in the region, they have no benefits and none of them wants to fight Israel. I want to emphasize that, right? right. The most anti-Israeli states, let's say Algeria, they're only, only anti-Israeli as in they give longer speeches about it. They don't want to actually endanger the lives of their citizens and their economies. So I think, I hope that that is what prevails in the United States. I think what really this, this recent event shows that the United States attempt to retreat 
from the Middle East are going to always uh, be faced with problems because they're, they're drawn back when stuff like this happens. And the United States and other countries can work with, with states such as Saudi Arabia and Egypt to try to lower the tensions and work against, this is what I tried to say in the piece, work against the murderous agenda of Tehran by trying to solve conflicts in the region and not allow it to do what it does. And let me also say that so long as the Islamic Republic exists, so long as the Khamenei's regime exists, it will always be a cause of instability and mayhem in the region. This is a truly agent of of chaos. But, you know, unfortunately, there are also no easy ways of, of getting rid of it. And a direct attack on Iranian territory, I don't think will lead to anything good for anyone, not least the long-suffering people of Iran who've done a lot to oppose this government and try to overthrow it, even if they haven't been successful yet. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about when you mentioned the United States, is, you know, when these conflicts become so violent and visceral, there are voices in America that turn to Iran and and push against it. What's happening with that so far and, and what might be different this time? Well, there are already groups in the U.S., like the United Against Nuclear Iran, which is a lobby group of sorts who have called for airstrikes on Iran in retaliation for the uh, attacks of the Hamas. But what we should remember is that, of course, United States for very long has not been in the mood for direct military intervention in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. In fact, President Biden is a third president in a row who is averse to do this. President Obama didn't like to do this. President Trump didn't really like to do this, right? Of course, Trump did escalate things. He killed General Qasem Soleimani of the, of the IRGC in January of 2020. But generally, United States is averse of getting itself directly implicated in conflicts in the Middle East, which is why it has tried to work with other partners. And I think, you know, the Biden administration has done some laudable things. Its attempts to sort of push, pull, extricate, if you will, the United States out of the Middle East is laudable. But I think the lesson that we've all learned and the Biden administration should take seriously and Israel should take seriously is that so long as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict exists, and it will exist if millions of Palestinians are stateless, and undeprived of their basic rights, mm-hmm. so long as that exists, um, there's no magical bullet of solving it. All Arab countries have said this for a very long time. All Arab countries, those that have relations with Israel, those that don't have relations with Israel, every single Arab country in the world, Jordan, came to Israel in 2002 and said, if you recognize the state of Palestine and finish the statelessness and occupation of Palestinian people, you know we will recognize you and we will have relations with you. Unfortunately, for a very long time, under Bibi Netanyahu in Israel, there has been something that an analyst calls cakeism. This idea that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can continue the occupation, but also have diplomatic success and effectively peace. It's an illusion. The conflict needs to be solved. Direct U.S. military intervention in the region is unlikely to help anything, and there's no appetite for it at any rate in the United States. What we really need is the solving of the conflict, and different ways of confronting the, the Iranian regime and supporting the Iranian opposition, supporting the Iranian civil society who are fighting against the civil regime. But a direct military attack, again, I don't think it will solve anything. And I don't think the American people will be behind it for any length of time. The last thing I want to ask you about is uh, possible scenarios over the next few days and weeks here. How, if it is possible, might other countries, the global community, whomever it is, step in to de-escalate things? And 
is that even possible or has there just been too much innocent bloodshed on either side recently for this to calm down, for lack of a better term, anytime soon? I was speaking to an Israeli friend of mine yesterday who is in Israel right now, who had to live through that terrible day, who lost a friend that we knew in the terrorist attacks on Saturday. And what she said was striking to me is that she said that, you know, there are, we were sort of talking about it. One terrible thing to imagine is that this will lead to the kind of effect that Second Intifada the terror attacks of 2000 to 2005 had on Israeli society, strengthening the right, sort of weakening the peace camp. Um, but it could also have the effect that the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur war uh, had, in which many people believed in Israel that actually they, you know, they should prioritize peace and that they should sort of give up territory that they currently occupy for peace. And one could only hope, you know, hope against despair, as I said, that that's, uh, that's ultimately the kind of effect that it will have on, on, on Israel. Many people in Israel want peace and they're happy to end the occupation. I should remind us that, you know, Yair Lapid, the last prime minister of Israel, he's by no means a leftist. Last year when he gave the speech at the United Nations, I mean, I just encourage people to listen to it. I'm not saying he was great or he had committed, you know, to everything that that progressive would want, but he also showed a different face of Israel and he did sort of confirm that ultimately a Palestinian state is what is needed. So that's in the long term. In the, in the more short term, there are many terrible scenarios to imagine. And one has to be honest, if Hezbollah opens a serious uh, northern front, as I said, if the United States or Israel do feel compelled to attack Iran, if Iran starts attacking U.S. bases in Iraq, which that hasn't happened for a while, it used to be much more common, or there is a direct confrontation, if the shadow war that Iran and Israel have had since 2006, at least, if that turns into a real war, many terrible possibilities are there, which will mean, you know, God knows how many, how many deaths can come. So that's, that's the worst, worst case scenario. But in terms of a mediation, so Egypt and Qatar are already trying to mediate between Hamas and Israel. It is likely that the, the current mood in the Israeli government might not be for any such mediation or ceasefire, that they might try to reoccupy the Gaza Strip and effectively destroy Hamas and end Hamas's rule there. Some have warned that this is what will activate that Northern Front we talked about. There are many terrible scenarios, as I said, to imagine about that broader conflagration. But there's also hope that, again, as I said, responsible Arab states, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, Jordan, all of whom are U.S. allies, let us not forget, many of whom, including Egypt and, and Jordan, have recognized Israel, have relations with Israel. You know, United Arab Emirates, who, who recognized Israel, this is the time to use these relationships and to try to bring together a sort of a more collective wisdom in the region, because at the end of the day, this terrible region of ours, full of war and mayhem and destruction, this doesn't serve anyone living in this region. No one wakes up saying they wish there were more missiles flying. No one, whether Israeli or Arab Iranian, wakes up saying they, they wish there were more wars happening in this region. It is possible to cool things down and try to bring about a ceasefire and try to solve the kind of conflicts that exist, um, but only if that collective wisdom and that coming together of various states in the region happens. Arash, thank you for this. And uh, well, we hope more peaceful nations prevail here. Really appreciate you helping us understand it a little better. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Arash Azizi of Clemson University. What Iranians want, women, life, freedom, is coming this January. That was the big story for more. You can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca 
you can always offer us feedback on the job we do here on this show, whether you like it or you hate it or you just want to commiserate. We are on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. We are available via email, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. You can always call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available in all podcast players, everywhere. And you can ask for it on a smart speaker by saying, play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.